Why don't you take uh, your glasses off so we can see you? And then apologise mm, to your neighbours for frightening nah, them. Nah, nah, nah. I'll leave these on. Nah, I like them. No, weird. Australia. Hey, I'm Stu Buchanan, and you're listening to the new Weird Australia podcast, number 119. Now, uh, it's been a while since the last episode, but there's been a lot going on behind the scenes. And uh, here's some exclusive news for you, dear podcast listener. You're literally hearing it here first. There's a brand new New Weird Australia compilation. That's quite hard to say, isn't it? A brand new New Weird Australia compilation on its way. It's called Space Between Space, and it's out on Friday, the 2nd of April. And I've been thinking about this kind of weird, strange space that we've been living in between the past and whatever the future will bring. But we're sort of living in this, I guess, what's sometimes referred to as a, as a liminal space. The space between what has come before and what is coming next. And so I put out a call to a bunch of artists, asked them to reflect on that moment and what they've given us in return is pretty special. It's a compilation of entirely unreleased works, all brand new works. Uh, as I say, it's out on Friday the 2nd of April. It's exclusive to Bandcamp. And all proceeds are going to the Barpadilla Appeal, which supports Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and community affected by COVID-19. That space between space, the next new New Weird Australia compilation. And so to this episode of the podcast, I'm talking with Canberra artist Sia Ahmad, one of the most prolific experimental left-field artists and curators in Canberra, and indeed well-known and, I have to say, very well-loved in the broader Australian experimental music scene. Now, throughout her career, she's been part of bands such as Agency, Spartak, and latterly Tangents, and was also the founder of what I would call a seminal Australian record label, Hello Square. She has also released many great solo records as a producer and singer-songwriter, and latterly working in compositions that straddle avant classical, minimalist electronics, and Indian ragas. Now, 2018 was a bit of a watershed year for Sia when she released the album Quiver, a collection of songs about gender, race, and religion, in which she openly spoke for the first time about living as a transgender woman. It's a beautiful record and a profound moment in her career, and indeed, something of a hard act to follow and we actually touch on that in this upcoming conversation now we discuss of course quiver and two other recent projects in modesty which was recorded with the australian art orchestra and the fantastic 2020 record a body full of tears now sia is both very uh, generous and uh, erudite and so this podcast episode runs a little longer than usual but i think you'll agree it's well worth it now, this week sees the release of a remix collection of tracks from Body Full of Tears called Realignment. I say this week, I guess that depends on when you're listening to this podcast. 5th of March, 2021, that one is out. Uh, and what a great lineup of remix talent on there. Lorraine James from Hyperdub, Indonesia's phenomenal Gabber Modus Operandi, the Singapore duo Doc Gif. Sydney's Alaska Orchestra have reinterpreted one of the tracks, as have dark wave trio potential and also on there this next track too which as this podcast is coming out before realignment is officially released is something of an exclusive i guess it's a remix of the track flaw featured from the great egyptian producer digit this is sia ahmad on new weird australia
Now, you have, you're one of the few artists that have the dubious honour of being a returning guest. I think I can count the number of people that have been on the New Weird Australia show more than once, maybe on one hand. So, uh, so there you are. But it was September 2010 was the last yeah. time that you did yeah, right. a radio wow. interview, right? It's like a decade, and, huh? Wow. Right. You know, and Gosh. and it feels like a lifetime ago you know i oh guess my in, in, yeah in both in both the macro and the micro um one of the interesting things i guess one of the reflections that i had when looking looking back at that was that we spoke because you co-curated the compilation sound of young camera mm, yeah you know which at the which at the time was like really exciting um because uh, you know there was a there was a great scene in Canberra. I mean, there always has been a great scene in Canberra, particularly at that time. But now looking back on it, it's really interesting. In in that it's predominantly a kind of white male compilation. Ten years have passed, and it's really important that I, but also New Weird Australia, kind of has that reflection to be able to kind of look back and say who's represented under your umbrella, who has been, and who do we then consider going forward. It was, you know, it's so funny, Stu, because I actually, so one of the kind of rare, like, live stream things I've done this year, or just digital performance things, was something for the Glasgow Improvisers Orchestra Festival, and there was an interview I did for them, and it came up, 
um, I do with Stuart Smith, who does a lot of writing for The List and The Quietus and all these things, and he's, you know, a Glaswegian music writer, and it was interesting because he brought up this article he did about Sound of Young Scotland, which is where we got the title from, and it was really interesting because I hadn't reflected on the compilation that IQ co-rated for New It Australia until, you know, earlier this month, and it was very telling. I'm like... I mean, and truthfully, like, I didn't identify as femme at that point in time, so I, I might have been, like, the one of the only people of colour, if not the only person of colour, but certainly it was an all-male representative, you know, of the music scene, and it's so interesting to have thought about that last decade in between the compilation and now and how there is a big femme, non-binary, queer drive for the Canberra music scene in 2020, and there has been for quite a while, and to see that evolution has been pretty amazing, and actually see it firsthand, not, like, dip out of the scene and just, like, come back to it afresh and be like, oh, wow, it's a whole different thing. Like, the evolution and the kind of social consciousness is really amazing. And you've said, I mean, a few of the interviews I think you've done over the last couple of years have also kind of... I guess reflected that position in in the sense of a kind of broader sense of hope and positivity. I suppose you know around inclusiveness within within the music scene more generally. I mean, it's got a long way to go, but it but it does feel like there's been something of a reckoning. In I guess in the recent history, it's forced a lot of individuals and organisations into the into reflection where perhaps that had been somewhat lacking. You know, so I hope that has the desired knock-on effect good forward. Do you mind if we start with Canberra? I realize it's probably quite a obvious starting place, but there's a couple of there's there's a couple of things I think that hook into where you are right now as an artist. And here's another thing I don't think I knew about you. Have you always lived in Canberra? Has that been Yeah, so look, um and actually talking about Canberra itself is really a great place to think about social conscious consciousness too because I think I've spent most of 2020 really addressing the idea of the continent we live on and the Indigenous nations on this space. And I've been really kind of grappling really hard between the idea of living in Canberra or living on Ngunnawal country and what's the, what's the actual truth. So for me, it's like I've been on Ngunnawal country since I was four years old and I was born into... And actually, this is a bad thing. I don't know um, the name of country that Parramatta is located on, but I was born into that country in 1986. So I've been here for most of my life. So I kind of see myself as someone who's very much part of this part of the world. It seems like there's two different narratives, I think, when it comes to Canberra, when we, when we think about artists from Canberra, that they, you know, they either choose to migrate out to Melbourne or Sydney, or those that kind of resolutely choose to stay in. And you're obviously in that latter camp. But what, what is it that keeps you in Canberra? Yeah, look, I think... Truthfully speaking, a big call was actually that I started a family quite young. So, and at a point where I was actually thinking my partner and I, my wife and I, we were thinking quite, you know, heavily about becoming a part of that first group, as you mentioned, right? The, um, the group that migrates out. And we definitely wouldn't have been the first one. I just, I know, I've, so, so many of my peers are split between you know, Wurundjeri land and Gadigal country, which is quite, um, it's quite amazing how, how concentrated most of them are. But I think for us, the family thing was a big thing because 
this area, this this land is so spacious and I think on a creative level it always inspired me and when I think about the music I listened to or the music I really took something from, like on a bass creative level, had those kind of locations have a quite an interesting similarity to where we are. So I really love that band Hood, who weren't quite from Leeds, but they're from like the more kind of Dales, Yorkshire Dales kind of area. And I always felt that really kind of melancholy similarity in like the way we looked at like our surroundings and that kind of thing. But at the same rate, I kind of feel that Canberra is in, like, the same, like, Canberra the city is in the same kind of boat as, like, in Austin, Texas. You know, it's a university town. And when we think about, yeah, like, indie rock, white indie rock, you know, Austin and Canberra are quite similar. Same with, like, Chapel Hill and, like, Merge Records. And, again, Chapel Hill is a big university town. And those, for me, were always, like, the weird kind of parallels. Washington, D.C. as well. Canberra... And, you know, like Washington Discord and Canberra and it's like big kind of metal, punk rock kind of underground that's always kind of been there as well. So these, there's always been these parallels. I don't think it's really hard to live here. I think people think there's not a lot going on. And then when we did the compilation 10 years ago, it was about showing that there's a lot going on. At least mm. musically, there's a lot bubbling away. So it's been pretty... It's been really interesting staying here and seeing how this area, this like land has kind of developed and how the people on land have, you know, kind of evolved and grown and who's come in and who's headed out. But like for me, I can't really see myself moving away from here unless someone's like, Sia, I'm going to pay you like X amount of dollars and this is going to change your life. It's the truth. So it sounds like, you know, Canberra allows rather than necessarily embraces, but it kind of allows kind of weird culture. And, by, and, I, and I use the term weird culture to encapsulate all sorts of different um, range of kind of, you know, aesthetic tastes and, and experiences and so on. I mean, that that kind of tolerance, I guess, for want of a better word, do you think that sort of helped, therefore, your own kind of journey? Because, you know, when we talk about your life as a, a now as a trans femme, coming to Canberra age four, you know, as part of a kind of Muslim family, how has that culture of Canberra then either kind of helped or hindered that story, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I was so lucky to kind of start my real kind of affirmation transition story around identity in this place. Like, I mean, like, and it started when I was young. Like, it started being a person of colour and being a Muslim. And I never really copped any, like, real racism back in the early 90s like I I, I might have been the only coloured kid in class but I didn't cop anything like it never yeah. happened and that was probably because I went to you know a pretty welcoming school in a tolerant neighbourhood surrounded by like I don't know middle class upper middle class kids mm. you know with like families who were not like thinking along racial terms or religious terms. So I was always really lucky. And I think, you know, if I think about that narrative, like 9-11 still is like a tipping point and people may not want to think of that time as that, but it's like, it's there and it happened and people did start to react differently to people of a Muslim faith, people who openly identified as Muslim. And so... For me, it actually, like, I was much older and much more able to deal with those things when maybe things started coming my way. 
But even then, Canberra was still... And obviously, like, this will be the narrative of anything I talk about in terms of Canberra and being on this land. is like, it's a bubble, and it's like a really safe bubble to be in. Things that might come your way, it's a minority. It's not... It's going to happen very little of your life because you're surrounded by the right people most of the time and the right kind of attitude. And so when I started my, like, gender, you know, identity journey, being in Canberra was perfect because I didn't, like, no one said, okay, you don't have a job now, and I didn't have to deal with that fight. You know, everyone around me was like, you know, and I'm, you know, my community is creative, left-leaning creative anyway, so it's not like anyone was like, I can't deal with that. Everyone was like, yeah, cool, okay, nice to meet you again, see ya whatever, you know, and just get on with it. I'm just in this world where I'm really lucky and I'm really privileged and I'm really aware of that privilege as well. And being here in this city, in this location, totally exacerbates the privilege as well because, you know, if I, if I was me in Bangladesh, the you know, the country of my parents' birth, it'd be a whole different story and you and I wouldn't be talking mm. about this right now. It'd right. be my life would yeah. be a lot harder. So I'm very aware of that privilege and... Yeah. I don't think I've ever been hindered, to be honest, by being in this place, which is what is probably one of those things where I know I can be here and be safe and sound yeah. and have a safe thing for my family as well. One day, I think I'll find someone to share my life with. Let's let's pick up on that comment there. You said about if we were talking about this in Bangladesh, it'd be a different story because I think that talks a little bit to your most recent work, Immodesty, which you describe uh, quite beautifully as a psychogeographic trip to the subcontinental heritage. I love psychogeography. I think that's such an interesting uh, kind of art form and kind of territory through which to to explore kind of story and identity. Can you talk a little bit about Immodesty, uh, which has been made with the Australian Art Orchestra? Yeah, I mean, Immodesty is like, it's such a long, like the recording we did with the Art Orchestra is like the last iteration of it, and that happened in the same year my last album, Quiver, dropped. And I hadn't really realised it 
Immodesty, Quiver, and another installation work I did, Broken Binary Brown, all they're really like a triptych, a big body of work around identity and sexuality and just like ownership of self. And so with Immodesty, it was always an interesting work for me because I really wanted to tackle head-on about that cross-cultural question of sexuality and being within like the yeah, the Austra white Australian context if you will, of how to, you know, deal with, like, puberty and unbridled teen sexuality and, like, letting these things just be but actually still having this whole other life that really determines that journey to make it relevant to now. If you go onto Netflix, there's that television, there's that series about Indian matchmaking and arranged marriages. And I think for anyone who's kind of unsure, as, as crass as that show is, it's worth, <laughs> it's worth kind of just having a skim through because I think the idea of arranged marriage is still so foreign to a lot of people, but it's actually a very big part of, you know, a lot of people's life on the subcontinent, on the subcontinent and off the subcontinent, but of a subcontinental background. And really, knowing that you might just have to muck about and, like, do what you can behind the scenes, in you know, underground, knowing that you're still going to be going down an arranged marriage route later on in life. And to me, it was always really interesting seeing that push and pull and knowing that my friends and peers weren't really dealing with that. And so, you know, I think a lot of my discussions around identity are about having a veneer, having a facade, and actually living double lives, which I think I didn't realise I was really doing that until, you know, like five years ago or whatever, but living dual lives and really having to navigate the world with two kind of frameworks the best you could. And like with the title of Modesty, I didn't have a title for it, but then I was over in Kochi in Southern Indian Kerala doing a residency, knowing that I was going to make this work about sexuality, teen sexuality, arranged marriages, puberty, <laughs> and the idea, the notion of immodesty kind of appeared to me just face on when I was just walking down the street and remembering the notions of modesty and how someone who is seen to be a woman needs to be covered from head to toe as much as they can be, and that is the right, you know, in inverted commas, the right kind of modesty. But then I saw men with like a sarong wrapped up well, you know, just like wearing short shorts and no no shirt and just like that's perfectly fine. That's their form mm. of modesty. And it was like that kind of imbalance between yeah, between how one is to see you, your personal being, your being physical being. And just thinking about that imbalance as well was really important when doing immodesty. So yeah, I did the residency and I, it came up with so many big questions and a lot of, yeah, kind of leaning into the psychogeographical thing about actually contextualising place mm. as part of the work and having those actual sonic signifiers as part of it and as part of narrative. And so the first iteration of work was presented as an installation at um, Paramasala. So that was really good and I was really stoked to have done that. And it was kind of like, well, look, if this is, you know, the iteration that it is, then that's great. And then I think I did a live kind of installation version of it, of the same thing for now now. But Australian Art Orchestra really were interested in doing a work with me. And they wanted to do this, like have me kind of reorchestrate the installation for an ensemble 
and perform live during during mapping Melbourne. And for me, that was great. It was better for this kind of work not to be pigeonholed as a queer work, but to be put mm. into that cultural context. Because I think these the questions we ask during the work or the kind of thoughts, inner thoughts we explore during the work are really important to do on that, you know, really public level. Because like I said, like, it's 2020 and people are still living dual lives that are like polar opposite of how they actually feel. And not being able to express that properly is like, it's very problematic and it's still, I can see it being problematic for quite a while yet. Well, you mentioned there that you know it forms part of a triptych that includes Quiver, and Quiver, I think, came out. It was sort of around that time that you you sort of first, I think, began talking more publicly about coming out as a trans woman. And Quiver, I think, to all intents and purposes, sort of feels like your way of you know publicly expressing those things that had previously been private that had been compartmentalized and done so and if we can sort of bring it back to to music um done so in a way where you're it's essentially an indie pop record which i feel like it kind of needs to be because the sentiments and the lyrics need that clarity to come through is all of that a fair reading yeah i think the big thing that i always talked about with the making of quiver was that the vulnerability was like first and foremost and as I was saying, the idea of living a dual life, living with veneers and like secrecy and really kind of compartmentalizing life, it's a massive burden to have. And, you know, a lot of it was just kind of simmering under the radar for such a long time and it didn't really kind of explode until like halfway through this decade, right? Like through 2015 or, yeah, 2015 or so forth. And even then it was still very secret and... For me, like, if we th- if I think about the works as a triptych, like, Immodesty and the other installation work 
broken binary brown. They're very cathartic. And they really speak, still speak to my kind of creative impulses in that sound art improvisation kind of way, abstract kind of way. But with Quiver, as you said, there's like sentiments in the texts, in the lyrics that were really about, they're just like expressing it's therapy. It was always therapy. And some of the actual music was written before I even realised I needed to be, you know, be honest about my identity. But I had no words to say with that music. The words came after, you know, I put the marker down and I was ready to express express what I needed to through words as therapy. So the thing I always kind of keep thinking about with Quiver is that the vulnerability is both, you know, they're in a textual level, but actually, as you said, it's an indie pop record. And I always, I, as you know, Stu, <laughs> I grew up loving indie rock and indie pop and songwriting, but I was... I think everyone knew me, knows me, as like a abstract improviser, sound artisty, artisty type person. And I think a lot of that is because my safety net was around electronic production and improvising and not actually allowing myself to express myself in a more musical way. This is the true musicality of what I want to show people and that's... it's it's completely in sync with what I want to express, you know, on an emotional level through words. And so it's funny, like, I think people, now that the new album, A Body Full of Tears, is out, people like, yeah, it was definitely more of a shock to hear Quiver and what that is, like, sonically, totally a shock compared to everything else and just the idea that you were trying to write things for strings and have you know, soul bass lines and just jangly guitars is pretty strange. But it was about stripping away all of those layers and being 100% vulnerable. And I think that also came through with the performances as well. Like, everything around those songs was about putting it all on the line and really Mm. being like, this is me and this is... Unequivocal. Unequivocal in this approach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think... Our music tastes in our sect often in quite often in ways that kind of uh, make me do a double take when I see some of your posts on Instagram because I'm kind of like, are you? Did you go to my mailbox this morning and kind of <laughs> raid it? And uh, you've taken the records back to your house. Um, were there particular bands or artists that um, you know, not necessarily thematically but sonically as well, that that you kind of drew from with with Quiver? Well, I can tell you now, nothing. Everything I'll say will be not new to you at all. <laughs> and that's the trick. Like, the thing that I kind of really realised as well during the songwriting process for that record and then as I move on, like, to now, is that actually I spend a lot of time thinking about what's happening now as a music listener and as a music fan. And there's just always these times when I sometimes feel like I'm being left behind because I'm, I'm just not that interested in, like you know, some subgenre of trap or, like, you know, something in particular. You know, I feel left behind and I kind of feel a bit of a, like, a bit of a dag and just, like, I don't know, it kind of plays on my insecurities a bit because what I want to do... It's Sorry, I have to interrupt. It's extraordinary to hear you say that because the type of music you listen to and, you know, the things that you share are so now, are so, <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, you're right on it. You're absolutely right on it. So That's I can't funny. accept that. 
I can't accept your dagginess. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> it's just, yeah, look, I, honestly, like when I was making Quiver, like I said, I had these kind of musical ambitions. And as you know, like I do listen to a lot of different types of music. So for me, one of the big wild cards was that I really love like that early 70s psychedelic soul period of The Temptations and really, really kind of exploring that kind of baseline bass work that's in that stuff. But they also had a lot of space and a lot of interesting kind of textual things that people don't really think about when they think about The Temptations. And also like Curtis Mayfield and things like that. I was really into that. But then I also really love like Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea by PJ Harvey, which to me is kind of a daggy record. <laughs> like, But it's her best. I think it's her best It's record. a really like, amazing record. Yeah. And actually, like, there's some sounds on there which are dated. It sound like 2000 and whatever, mm. whenever it came out. Mm. But the songs sure. are really beautiful in a way that yeah. I love Rid of Me because the songs are really br- brutal, Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I love, yeah. you know, so PJ Harvey and that kind of scope of songwriting mm. was kind of always... A, it's always an influence, but it kind of made a lot of sense at that time. Hmm. And then ironically, I think I really enjoyed like revisiting Vespertine by Bjork when I made oh. Quiver, which I think was for like that kind of, like one of my favorite Bjork songs is Hidden Place, which I think she really, it's a really beautiful kind of expressive pop song. And she really, emotion, the emotional strain on her voice on that song is something really amazing for pop music and I loved kind of referencing that and thinking about, you know, yeah, vulnerability in the way you sing and, yeah. you know, hitting pitch and deflecting pitch and things like that. So it's, you know, weirdly a technical thing but also very much a raw emotional thing, revisiting it's- that too. You know when an artist makes a record and you're kind of like, and it just hits every mark that you love about that artist. You're like, this is the, this is great, and then it just sort of takes it to the next level. And you're like, that's the record, that's the record I didn't know that I wanted, and now that I hear it, I, it's 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 the perfect record. And Body Full of Tears for me is that record of of your work because I love your work, but this record I think just 
fucking knocks it out of the park. It's an astonishing record. It really, really is. But it speaks to me, you know, on so many levels, but it speaks to me a lot in terms of production. I think, you know, you, you, you talk about what how is it, you talked about as, as being a cathartic din, which of course appeals mm. strongly. <laughs> but also that kind of, uh, not so much a kind of reversion to, to electronics, but incorporation of all of those other territories. So it feels like a sort of amalgamation in some respects, but also something quite new. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the kind of music or the sonics around um, Body Full of Tears? Yeah, look, the thing with the Body Full of Tears is I actually think it's maybe the daggiest record I've made too, <laughs> which is, Damn. and I will explain why. But only, And, you know, I think this is the thing about feeling, <laughs> feeling old and feeling irrelevant and feeling like, but also being, learning and accepting that, it's okay to do your own thing and not think about what's happening, right? And that took me a long time to accept. And I think this is the thing that you have when you realise, oh, I've got a career in in this kind of creative field and I want to have a career. And you get too caught up in the word career as mm-hmm. opposed to the word creative. And the choices can get a bit skewed and the way you kind of think about things can get a bit skewed. So Quiver was like the first step for me in actually, you know, understanding what I need to do as a creative. And I did that big body of work, the triptych as I call it. And then come 2019, I finished touring Quiver. I did my last shows with Tangents because we released our last album, New Bodies. Sorry, the last, there's an album out now. So the previous album, New Bodies, Mm. came out that year and we would, I had a massive year of touring, playing live, putting it all out there, putting it on the line. And come 2019, I'm thinking, what's next? And then I started a residency program, a year-long thing with um, You Are Here, who are based here in Nunawal Country, and they're an amazing, amazing organisation outfit. And I've applied to do the program based on doing some kind of like, I don't know, I think I was like a visual dance sound piece and we were going to I was going to kind of score the whole thing based off the way we incessantly tap rhythms at our work desks and score that you know anyway there's a whole thing it was a whole articulated thing but when I got to the program having been successful I realized that's just not it's not coming from the heart it's not coming from the same place quiver is it's not actually a genuine work it's a work for making work sake so I spent all of 2019 really not really just dealing with the anxiety of not knowing what to do next and mm. being understanding my role at present as an artist who's not making art. And that was a really massive thing because, mm. as you know, Stu, I've been making for a very long time and without a break. And that can... You're one of the most prolific people that I know. Yeah, and it was always like, even if I wasn't making my own work, I was putting something out on Hello Square, I was putting on a tour or, you know, all kinds of crap. So so it was like a really, like, intense 12 months and I had a lot to deal with. But I realised, like, it also was a beautiful 12 months because I really honed in on being at home and being, you know, being present in the family structure which I think a lot of people, maybe, I think a lot of musicians don't want to talk about so much, but for me it was honestly like Mm. having to address that because I've got, as you know, I've got young kids, they're primary school age kids, and my partner, my wife Kate, she kind of has 
you know, taken quite the burden on that because I've just been busy doing stuff. So really honing in on that. And then at the end of 2019, it was like, you know what? If I don't make another record, if I don't make anything else, that's fine because I'm okay in my life. And lo and behold, bushfire season starts Hmm. and the impulses to write text come and kind of think about music come. And it comes very naturally and very fluidly and very organically and no conceit. And so, Hmm. yeah, basically bushfire season triggered this uh, written bit of text, which is on the record called Blown Out Trace Out, which is a direct response to just what was happening in my environment and also reflecting on the Warwick Thornton film, We Don't Need a Map, which just thinking about, yeah, just the idea of like in, the continual ignoring of, you know, indigenous um, land management, things like that and the after effects. And so it was kind of like a big, lot of big thinking, but things just came really naturally. And so come June... 2020 where we've kind of then gone from bushfire season not really dealt with that ended up in lockdown because of covid which we knew was happening overseas like Mm, you know in the world anyway during bushfire season so all of this has happened and i've just made like two records in the most organic way possible and i made it at the like i'm sitting at my dining table now i made the record here i'm back on ableton cutting things up and you know playing tetris with the sound files and so forth. And I didn't really go in with any songs. I didn't write any songs. The most written thing was Floor Featured, where that I started writing that track before Quiver was released, but after it had been recorded. But when I say written, I mean I just made the drum beat and recorded it to my iPhone, which is what you hear on the record. So it's to me, the record is musically and sonically, I kind of think of it like a hip-hop producer's you know, beat maker, you know, crate digger record, except my crate was my sound, you know, my hard drive. And as you know, there's a lot of different musicians on there, but I'm so lucky to have had, you know, from working for so long to made a community for myself where they're all on my hard drive, most of them, and they've made all this stuff for me in the past and then I could just kind of recontextualize it and Mm. dump it in and then there's a few feelers out to people to just add things in real life you know in Mm. real time and so it's both my daggiest record but the easiest record i've ever made
let's see if I can kind of unspool that a little. It sounds like you're, for want of a better word, these records, these two records you describe, kind of made very much with that sense of flow. Like it was unforced and very true and very honest, but it's you as an artist wanting to express yourself in the in the kind of truest sense. That need to having to make work so that it's there and it needs to come out versus perhaps that that kind of drive which you mentioned you know doing so much simultaneously that drive to feel like you should be doing something as opposed to it just just coming and i wonder if that's part of it that once you kind of remove that sense of expectation on yourself that the drive is is very very different in its in its nature the most important thing for me was that if it didn't feel right during making i just had to let it be and not push it and that so I was is that new though is that something that you in the past you would have pushed you know? yeah so my methodology's always been I let everything kind of percolate in my mind for a long time and when I'm ready I put it onto paper so to speak you know I will mm. then so you know I'll go into the studio and I'll record and I can usually get things done pretty quickly with that methodology but then if it comes from a sl- if it came from a more disingenuous place to me, then it might not take that, you know, it might not be that easy because I was laboring mm. over things. I was thinking that I really want this to sound like this, mm. but I'm not really feeling it. I'm thinking about something else. It was a bit different with Quiver because, like I said, some of the songs had already been written, um, the music, I should say, but then there was. Even though I had this ambition to do certain musical things, it all came from a pretty genuine emotional place, I feel. So it did come. That kind of thing came quite quickly and easily. And I think, look, the therapeutic angle made that easier. This time around, it was, yeah, that thing. If it doesn't work out, I'll just drop that idea. And if I come back to it, great. Not a problem, but... Don't force... Don't force the ambition to, you know, happen. And so, I mean... Deficit was on the compilation, the Provenance compilation. Mm. And that was probably the second thing I'd done after Blown Out, Trace Out. And it was just wanting to do that kind of music. And then the words kind of just come on top of that and come from, again, come from a personal place. So it falls falls out quite easily. But just trying to do something in that, you know, post-punk electro clash thing. So the thing, the reason why I kind of think this record's daggy to me is that I feel like, you know, I've become comfortable with what I really like and what I want to actually do. And if it doesn't, if it's maybe not now, in inverted commas, then that's okay. The people who like it will like it and they will enjoy it. And that's awesome. That's actually the end goal rather than like, oh, I've got a career to maintain. And so I want to try and, be on top of the new sound or whatever. So things like Electro Clash were quite big for me, but so was like Tony Allen and Afrobeat. And I was thinking, how can I smoosh these things together? And then <laughs> how can I smoosh noise together? And I was thinking about those early tricky records with Martina Totley Bird right. and yeah. thinking about that kind of stuff and having the dual voices in certain places. And, you know, it was like a real smoosh of things. And the, there's an actual thread between the triptych and a body full of tears, which is that a lot of the field recordings used in a modesty are on this record as well. Oh, okay. Which is yeah. kind of like, it's an interesting, you know, thread to kind of join the dots, if you will. Because I, I would say this record's less vulnerable 
still quite expressive, but it's more like an open spectrum in terms of theme. Mm. So okay. personal, but not... There's more things about parenthood and just, you know, resigning yourself to okay. being like, you know, the parent you didn't want to be <laughs> in places <laughs> and, you know, mortality. So there's like yeah. bigger questions at stake rather than like the real nuts and bolts stuff around identity on a lyrical level. But musically, it was always about this sonic catharsis. And that, I think, was actually really representative of the catharsis of my 2019. And really being like, what the hell? What the fuck am I making next? What am I doing? What does that even mean? I've got all these ideas in my head. And actually, rather than thinking I need to have the ambition to really do it well, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do this clusterfucker sound and see where it ends up. See where it goes. Right. You talk about it being a daggy record and, you know, you talk about whether or not you're out of touch. And at the same time, you commission Lorraine James from Hyperdub and also Digit from Cairo, who just dropped a record that, to all intents and purposes, could have been written at the same time as Max and K by Tricky. Yeah. Um, you know, and those two artists are absolutely completely of now and, and of the pulse. And I can't wait to hear those remixes because they're phenomenal artists. formed Hello Square in the early kind of early 2000s. I arrived in Australia sort of synchronous to that and Hello Square was a real touchstone for me kind of understanding, trying to get a grips I guess with Australian experimental left field music from the margins call it what you will. And was, was an inspiration when I you know set up my own label Provenance. Now we're both in the position of both having essentially stepped away from those projects and you know you've spoken to me about the idea of kind of working outside of the label framework, which again is kind of outside of the, or, or outside of the careerist framework. Anyway, it does make me wonder if there, if there is a place for a kind of ultra indie label in today's climate and whether there is a kind of label journey still there for you, do you think? Or is this now a kind of, you know, release away from that into just doing stuff completely DIY? You know, I was lucky to you know, be part of Tangents and, you know, I left on, we left on, you know, amicable terms and it's, and it's great to have been part of that journey and see what like working with a label like Temporary Residence means for a band and what that really means, you know, when they're, they're a label at a certain level, you know, they've got, you know, that Mogwai and Explosions in the Sky and all kinds of other stuff, you know, they've got big stuff. Not that Tangents was the big stuff. And so it was interesting to see how that relationship works and how the dynamic works. But also being someone from a really DIY background who 
kind of got frustrated quite easily when we couldn't just make things happen. So the push and pull was always there. The thing with Hello Square was always about we are always going to be your first label. The skill sets I have can help you get your record out so you have a profile to take your next record to a bigger label. Someone else. Yeah. To someone else. And to me, that was like a really kind of honest, honest approach. Honourable kind of comes with it, but I don't think, again, that's not the end game. The end game was mm. to support an artist in putting out records. Now, I grew up loving records maybe more than artists at times. That's just part of my kind of musical nerd mm. DNA, yeah. right? You touch on, you know, all puns intended, a label like Touch, because it's like Oren <laughs> Mbarchi's on there, Philip Jack's on there, and you want to see what else is on there. Warp Records, exactly the same. And then all there was so many labels in, like, the 90s and 2000s where you could find something really good and then just keep checking out their keep. early websites and go down that journey. And so that journey was always really an important influence on doing Hello Square. The journey's different now, though, and as you know, Bandcamp's such a massive asset to an artist, and you get the one-on-one -on -one relationship with your buyers. You can, it's so great to check out, you know, fan collections. It's so great to just check out artists through that mechanism, and some of them are on labels, and some of them aren't. And, yeah, for me, the career thing was a big thing. Like, stepping away from that framework for me was like, the career's there, I just wanted to be organic. So I'm not, it's not like I'm not going to put in 110% in with each project I do. I'm always going to give that. But for me, I've hustled for a long time and I think I got quite, t I'm, you know, I got quite tired of the hustle and then I realized the hustle doesn't have to be so hard. Mm -hmm. And we're in a very particular world where touring is quite a strange proposition now. So even the idea of touring is quite like not really something I want to go down for a while. Just really, just really enjoy putting out music and people hearing the music you want them to hear it is kind of like a really great thing to have been able to do. And then I looked at other things as well. So when it came to putting out the record, I was like, no, I'm not going to put a Hello Squared logo on. It's not going to be part of that catalogue. It's going to be part of my catalogue. And that started with Quiver as well. And Quiver was, you know, released as a CD, which is not the most popular format anymore. But the CD was part of the zine. And so there was like a couple of different angles that made that something I wanted people to tap into. And, you know, it's great. I don't have any copies of the zine left. It makes sense. You make a small amount, people who want it will get it. And you know it's gone to a loving home. <laughs> and I, Yeah, and I, and I think there's a kind of, you know, the way you talk about it implies a kind of specificity in the individual relationships that projects have to to the world and the ecosystem in which they're created, i.e. this record or this body of work deserves this framework for yeah. it to be presented. And, and this body of work deserves this framework. And if you're on a, a label, the expectation is that you persist with that label irrespective of what the project is. And you know, many, many labels give artists the space to do what they want to do, but there's still that constraint of not being able to say, actually, the community of people that I want to work with with this record are on a completely different label or, or a completely yeah. different different tangent i don't know where labels will kind of fold into in the next kind of five or ten years but it's you know maybe it'll go in a really interesting direction that we just haven't quite envisaged yet i think that's a really big thing to like look forward to exactly like i think as an artist you always kind of looked at a label thinking 
will you invest in me? Will you invest your money? But the I, the reality of it is now that there's less money in putting out records than there ever has been. And so, for me, it's like, yeah, okay. Like, I had a really beautiful message from someone in the UK who bought Quiver the other day. And he was like, I've never identified as, you know, very manly or masculine. And while I've come to terms with that, your music, re- like, Quiver really spoke to me. How they just found me on Bandcamp somehow, and that's the thing about finding the right community for you. And the thing that I think about a lot in my like arts practice, and like I guess my dual role as like someone who works in arts administration, is that community doesn't have to be massive. Your community can be four people you really trust, or you really get along with, or you just know you can say the right thing to and you'll get the right kind of provocations or feedback or critical discussion out of. And this is the thing about, like, if you join, people like, I really want to, I hope this label likes my record, because then you're thinking about, I can be part of that family. But actually, you know, community is about family. Community is about, you know, just making sure you've got a good relationship with the people Mm -hmm. who, you know, really respond to your work, and vice versa. For me, it's about... I'm going to put my record out there. Digital is infinity now, which is great. But, you know, I can make a small amount of physical product for the people who actually want the physical product. I mean, with A Body Full of Tears, we made earrings because that, right, yeah. you know, we that spoke to me and we had a chat and they listened to the record and they responded and there's like local flora involved in the actual physicality of the work itself and that's great, you know, to me... That speaks to me and it speaks to the 10 people who buy those earrings. But it's not a mass market product. It's just a, it's a thing. Yeah. It's not a product. That's probably the best way to say it. It's just, it's something for the, for the listener, however they want to engage yeah. with, the, with the work. Yeah. And I think it's that, it's, you know, when you, when you divest from that notion of career, or at least the way that, you know, the, the way we've been talking about it, then you also divest away from the notion of music as product, you know, and you and you further embrace the notion of music as art and music as process and, you know, music as A real interesting thing, and... Stu, was that, like, during that whole process of 2019, I kept touching back. Like I said, I was actually spending all that time with my family, like the most extended time I'd spent and really actually understanding what I need to do for my family. But what it also made me think was, like, those early years of making music and the naivety and the innocence and things like burning CDRs and sticky taping artwork together and like doing, just making those clusterfucker sounds because that's <laughs> what you just wanted to do. And it reminds me of when I first started going up to Sydney and going to like Hibernian House, right? And like seeing, you know, bands like Castings and the Spanish Magic Crew and really, and hanging out with Adam, you know, the, you know, sadly missed Adam D Mills and you know I used to I was in Wollongong for uni for one year and I used to go up every weekend and just spend like a couple of hours hanging out with Adam at Sound and Fury and there was just this real naivety about that and really just wanting to just do whatever and coming out of 2019 it was like I want to be the best person I can be for my family without it being an issue for my career and the career not being an issue for that for the family and just do things with that same kind of energy when it happens without without that 
as I said, you don't want the pressure of a career. But to have that same kind of like joy and love for the art you make like you did when you first started doing it. And so for me, I'm always thinking about that now. So even though I'm like label culture's changed, I'm still thinking about, yeah, I, I do want to just put out a record for putting out a record's sake because I've got the music. I want to spend, waste money on that, but I'm not really wasting money anymore because I know I can, you know, do it in a, you know, equitable way. So that seems like a really, you know, appropriate time to pause. Um, thanks for your time today. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion, as I expected it would be. But um, uh, thank you for, you know, being so uh, giving with your time and, and, and your stories and so on. So It's thanks, always Steve. a pleasure to talk to you, Stu. <laughs> thanks. was too weird to be believed. It was in the wrong place. No. Weird. Australia.